Welcome back to the Lou Perez Podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you want to support the show, please head over to theloupereze.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community on locals.com. And be sure to follow me on all social media at theloupereze. Here we go. I'm joined by my friend, Gene Epstein, who just turned 76 years old. Happy birthday, Gene. Thanks Thank for being you, here. Thank you, Lou. Thank you, Lou. And uh, it's a pleasure to be uh, on the podcast of a multi-talented guy such as yourself, a great comic, a great thinker, a great cerebral comic. Uh, there are quips of yours that I keep repeating, um, one of them about Obama. We could get into that one about uh, how he couldn't make the ceremony, the wedding ceremony, but he did send a present. That was a great <laughs> line of it. Remember when you did that, when you were my warm-up act at the Soul Forum. Lou, you said I just turned 76, but you haven't pointed out what an important guy I am, what a presence, what, what, why I am a force in the libertarian movement. I do direct uh, the libertarian uh, debate series, the, the Soul Forum. And you, of course, have been one of my regular attendees. You're often in the audience. Uh, uh, you're a great admirer of what I do in that regard. And I was honored uh, to have you as one of our warm-up actors at one point. And that's when you told that classic joke on Obama. So it's a privilege to be here. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for those for those kind words. And yes, I do hold you in, in very high regard. And um, I, I have to apologize. We were supposed to uh, record this on your birthday. Yeah, yeah, but exactly. There was a problem with uh, with the Wi-Fi. The uh, spectrum that I use was uh, was taken down for a few yeah. hours. Uh, yeah, but- yeah, yeah. I, I assume it wasn't. Wasn't Spectrum just trying to squelch a libertarian podcast? It wasn't anything political. There. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we don't want to get too paranoid, Lou. I, yeah, not too, not too paranoid, man. I, I wish that I was the target of a conspiracy. That would yeah, be yeah. that would be amazing. <laughs> although, although I have to say, um, you are yeah. now uh, one year older, um, and I guess in solidarity, um, my neck hurts on the oh. the left side of my neck hurts. Oh, there you go. And you and you're uh, and and uh, how many uh revolutions around the sun have you recorded, Lou? Thir- uh 38 in February it'll be 39. Uh 38. Yeah, so I guess uh, I think I think you'd multiply 38 by 2, you get 76. I think it's a double, a perfect doubling there, Lou. There I we believe. go. My arithmetic is right. Yeah, it is right. Well, Two times 38 is 76. So I guess I have twice as much wisdom as you, Lou, hopefully, uh, twice as much information to impart. So yeah. uh, shoot, give me a question. Yeah. Well, well, I was actually going to ask you that. Um, do you ever feel a little uh, uh, weight on your shoulder when it comes to being expected to have wisdom um, at, your, uh, at your age? Or do you welcome it? Well, yeah, no, I, a little bit of ambivalence about that. Um, I, I did an, I did an interview uh, last week with a couple of young guys who were just asking me about whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic. And I, I've had an optimistic uh, tendency all my life. And so uh, I answered them that uh, that after you know just being having been around the block with so many different experiences, I'm. Uh, I'm optimistic. And I guess by and large, I do feel it's legitimate uh, to point out to people that I came of age in the 1960s. I lived through the 70s, 80s. I saw a lot of cycles and a lot of swings. And so, uh, and then you, when you feel these things viscerally, it, it matters a lot. You know, obviously people like you can read history and those guys can read history, but having been through those, I was in Chicago in 68, demigrating 
demonstrating against the Democratic Convention. I, I avoided seeing that. Day. I think it was a Netflix uh, show about what happened in Chicago, partly because I thought it would probably be inauthentic. Um, so again, no, no, that's a digression. My only point is that I've been, I've done a lot. I've been, I was a part of the new left. I became a libertarian in my late twenties. And so I guess I feel that uh, when people ask me the softer questions, I should say the softer question about uh, where things are going, what the future will bring, whether you're optimistic or pessimistic, then I guess I'm reasonably comfortable uh, trotting out the fact that I've had a lot of experience. The harder questions, the more specific questions about uh, well, what's going on, the analytical questions, I guess I, don't, I shouldn't pull rank on anybody. Uh, I've got to do my homework just like anybody else. Mm-hmm. With uh, the, you described the new left. Uh, yeah. what, what was that? How would you uh, define the new left? Well, the, the the new left was uh, was was originally a sort of an outgrowth of the civil rights movement, uh, and and then it became uh, empowered and uh, steered by the uh, by the uh, demonstrations against the Vietnam War, and you could certainly say that uh, that <clears throat> as a practical matter, uh, those of us who joined Students for Democratic Society. SDS, as it was known, started by uh, by Tom Hayden and uh, um, others, and Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin were part of that movement. Uh, we didn't want to get drafted, you know. So, uh, I mean, the harsh uh, and embarrassing reality is that we were all in danger of getting drafted into that war uh, that required, you know, half a million people, half a million soldiers at any one time. And of course, there was a lot of turnover, so they had to draft a lot of people. And we didn't want to get drafted. And so that, so to, to some degree, we were operating out of self-interest. I still think, of course, the war in Indochina generally against Vietnam, and Laos, Cambodia, uh, was a major crime against humanity. Uh, but uh, we had a lot then to specifically object to. So when I went to Chicago in 1968 uh, to demonstrate against the Democratic Convention, uh, many of us were favoring Eugene McCarthy, who said he would end the war, and then Hubert Humphrey, who had been LBJ's vice president, Lyndon Johnson's vice president, who symbolized basically furthering the war, did get nominated. So, So we had a war, an ugly war, to object to. I, I, I emphasize that because when you ask me what was the new left all about, then I would have to say substantively we weren't about very much. In other words, what did we want, really want to change? What's a, what, what's a, what kind of society did we want? Uh, did we really want uh, a, a socialist society in, in line with what we saw in uh, in the Soviet Union or in Red China? There were people, uh, I wasn't one of them, who were infatuated with Mao Zedong of uh, Red China, who was later exposed uh, to be a uh, obviously a mass murderer. There were people who thought of Ho Chi Minh, who was head of North Vietnam, as a great guy. I wasn't one of those. I just felt that the war was a major crime in any case. Um, so, uh, but, but apart from that, then those of us who were not enamored of any of these examples, we had just this vague idea that communal living was the whole idea, that we, want, that we didn't want to work for corporations, we didn't want to work in business, we just wanted to form communes and, uh, and pretty much uh, make our own yogurt. 
and grow her own food and raise her own animals. And in fact, that's what I did for a while. I went to the country and lived on a kind of economy that was more or less breaking up. And I found it to be an extremely hectic life. People had jobs uh, during the day, but their houses were always breaking down. Their, their, their cars were always breaking down. They were raising their animals, growing their vegetables. Uh, and uh, keeping that. And uh, so I thought the pace of life was way too much. Communal living living was not for me and not for most other people. So we gave up on that. I guess that's the sort of like the long winded answer to what the new left was all about. But then when the Vietnam, when, when Nixon ended the draft in the early 1970s, then resistance to the war faded. Then the fear of getting drafted uh, faded. And and then uh, and then the new left, I mean, the thumbnail uh, a description of what happened is, of course, then it splintered into the weather people who were mm-hmm. blowing up buildings, crazy people who decided they'd go to a payphone at night. They'd call, they'd call up security at the building and say, everybody, please get out because the building is about to blow up in 10 minutes. You know, nobody ever thought, and even to this day, they don't ever thought, you know, you go to a payphone, what if the call doesn't get through? You know, <laughs> the yeah. building's going to blow up and people are going to get killed. You know, so that's what these crazy weather people were doing. They, they were just resorting to violence. And that was part of the, uh, you know, the death throes of the new left. But uh, so that's, that's, the long, that's, uh, that, that's the long-winded short uh, story version of my experience with the new left. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, really intrigued by... Uh, yeah. Groups like uh, like the Weathermen, who later I yeah. guess became the Weather Underground, and yeah, all of these yeah. other you know sort of uh, guerrilla tactics that were being yeah. used in the in the sixties and in the seventies. Yeah. Um, it's almost uh, it, it almost feels like uh, not only a, a different time period but a, a different country. When when you oh. think about people planting bombs and that sort of thing, always well, me now in, in the yeah, year twenty twenty. Yeah, 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 yeah. um, you know the closest that. Uh, the, that comes to it would be, I guess, um, you know, the Oklahoma City bombing or, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, why? Uh, I, I watched a documentary about the the Weathermen. I think it was uh, made uh, in the early two thousands, uh, and it seems like most of the people involved went on to have success in academia. It seems like there's quite a few, <laughs> quite a few uh, professors and that sort of, yeah, yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah, Bill Ayers. Yeah, they went into indeed. Yeah, no, I, I was actually, I was, I was actually uh, a graduate student at the New School in downtown Manhattan, and suddenly we heard this major explosion. And in fact, perhaps if you read about us or a film about the Weather Underground, that was when uh, uh, Kathy Wilkerson and uh, I'm forgetting all their names, Kathy Boudin. Uh, and uh, Lou and Bill Ayers, they were uh, they were at a brownstone that belonged to like, the parents of one of them, and they were making bombs in the basement. Brownstone on Eleventh Street it was actually right next door to Dustin Hoffman's brownstone. Dustin Hoffman, the actor, yeah. and uh, and something something went wrong in their in their atom bomb testing. I'm sorry, terrible for me to laugh because a couple of them were killed. And oops, there's a light that uh, I got to turn back on here. A couple of them were killed. And uh, and um, Dustin Hoffman ran out with his parakeet, I think it was. Anyway, so just crazy, stupid antics on their part. But but it's interesting that you say that it seems like a foreign country, uh, because I guess you'd say that the violence uh, of the last few months has not been accompanied by sort of bombing on a grand scale. But of course, I there I guess uh, you know now that you've sort of uh, asked me, do I do I try to sound like a gray eminence uh, half the time? Do I do I sound like a pompous old fart 
when I can, I guess I do. I try to tell people that we, that I knew then that uh, that nonviolence, a uh, nonviolent resistance, was was overwhelmingly the only way to go. The state has a monopoly of violence. That that nonviolent resistance, as exemplified by Mahatma Gandhi, by uh, by Martin Luther King, can be very effective, and it and it's certainly effective in this kind of environment was was effective then uh, under King and could be effective today. And uh, I do occasionally talk to uh, some relatives who counsel violence. It's both impractical, stupid, and of course, people get hurt, property gets destroyed, harm, evil gets done, and in the name of, uh, and obviously that corrupts you in any case. But just, just in terms of pure tactics, uh, nonviolent resistance is the only way to go. I've been trying to organize nonviolent resistance against the lockdowns, but I'm not that much of a leader, not practiced at it. So I've just been talking about it, not actually doing much about it. Yeah. As I think as we've seen with, uh, warfare in general, even the idea of targeted bombings or targeted drone strikes often has collateral damage. And I remember uh, from that documentary about yeah. the weatherman, yeah. that uh, that scene that, that that you described, the one that uh, uh, there was actually uh, stock uh, stock footage of Dustin Hoffman standing outside of that building that that it exploded. Oh, is that right? Yeah, yeah and I, I I don't know if he was uh, living with Gene Hackman uh, at the time. I remember hearing that the that those two oh, were, uh, no, were roommates. Think, or something. Yeah, no, no, no. He okay, no, you know he he and Gene Hackman, and on top of that. Um, uh, Robert Duvall were actually oh, wow. roommates. So I was like the story, you know, three ordinary looking guys who want, who want to become actors. And then right. amazingly, all three of them become almost superstars. And, and that's a great story. No, but this, I think, was after The Graduate. Uh, Dustin Hoffman's big breakout uh, role had been uh, produced. And he was in The Money. I think he was living with his then wife slash girlfriend uh, at the time. Um if I have my dates right, I think this was after The Graduate had come out, so he was already a star, and he was no longer needing to bunk with uh, with those guys, for what that's worth. Yeah. Um, but they, anyway. And, and um, uh, th- this was, uh, th- th- my, I, I bring this up because in, in, in the doc, uh, yeah. I think that explosion uh, led to the death of, I think, two uh, two members of the of the Weathermen. Um, yes, indeed. And, yeah. and I think that was, that might have been like the first time that as a, as an organization or as a group, they they thought, "Wow, you know, but we just lost two of our comrades. Like there is death uh, in what we're doing. Uh, maybe we should change tactics." Um, Did they really? You know, okay, then at then least we, according yeah. to the doc. Well, that's that interesting. The, yeah, I, I I haven't followed. I, I obviously knew them. I actually met Kathy Wilkerson. Kath, Kathy Boudin then later became. Is that was in no no Kathy Boudin uh, boy I'm forgetting the name of the um, perhaps you remember the name of the woman uh, B- Bernadine Dorn Bernadine Dorn but this is funny that that years later uh, we had uh, I was raising my kids on the Upper West Side and um, my then wife said she was at a meeting of parents and we're going around the room and uh, and one of the women said uh, I'm Kathy Boudin and everybody said oh my god wow <laughs> they just they was audibly Kathy Boudin what are you doing here I thought you were in prison for blowing people up you know she had been sprung and and then she 
she oh, that's right. And then she she became a she managed to become a lawyer. So the, the odd part of it is that these people really were involved with with the wreaking death, but they mostly came out in pretty good shape. They the the society forgave them. They did do time. They suffered certainly for their sins. But uh, uh, this was uh, not that many years later that she was just a parent in uh, in New York. And uh, she uh, was doing okay. I wonder. So, I wonder if that if that sort of yeah. can stand as a as a model of forgiveness in a way, yeah, where it's well, like we're uh, because it, it seems like we're, we're sort of in a time, I guess, with with cancel culture and that sort of thing, <laughs> where you see people's lives upended over over jokes, over uh, you know uh, a statement, you know, here or there. But meanwhile, yeah. you have people who actually planted bombs blew shit up and 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 somehow you know you're at a pta meeting with this person you know how many decades later yeah 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 indeed uh yeah i know well yeah you know we what we can forgive and what we can't it's uh it's 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 pretty weird uh you know it's uh I guess yeah. You know, you're pushing pushing my 76 year old wisdom, uh, Lou. I don't know if I can give you wise words about that. I'll think about that one though. About when we should forgive and when we shouldn't. Uh, uh, and you'll say, well, thank you, Rabbi Epstein, for those insights. Uh, but uh, I'll have to pass on that question for the moment. Yeah. Well, I, I, I noticed that uh, you didn't contact me on Yom Kippur, so and you, <laughs> and you didn't have to. You have nothing to to, to be uh, sorry about when yeah, it comes to me. Yeah, I, I used to do. I used to do a column about economic sins, my sins as a columnist. And uh, when I was, I had been, I guess you haven't mentioned uh, one of my other uh, credits on my on my Vita. For 26 years, I was uh, economics and books editor of Barron's Financial Weekly, and I did a weekly column about the economy. I left uh, in uh, 2018, having been basically pushed out by new management. But I had a 26-year run there, and I had a good time. And every year I did do a Yom Kippur column, although one of the editors finally, who was Jewish, finally said that she found this very offensive, that it was turning Yom Kippur into my own kind of confessional. And yeah, I could have gave could have told her, look, I can say, look, Judaism is all over the place. There's Reform Judaism. There's there are, there are agnostic rabbis. We do any damn thing we choose. I didn't give her guff. I I I I just didn't do the column that year because she got so upset at my at my doing when she herself was going to shul and atoning for her sins, and I was making it into some kind of circus and and actually polling people on who should atone for what sins and so on. And obviously, this year, of course, the Yom Kippur column. Would be a mile long on all the sins that so many people have committed. I was narrowing it to economics, but even narrowed to economics, it would be a pretty long list. Yeah. yeah. Um, could, maybe we could talk a little bit about um, you know libertarians uh, in in general. I think yeah. you point you pointed something out on Twitter where uh, oftentimes, anytime libertarianism is brought up, people who aren't libertarians seem to think like, oh, they're just uh, uh, a bunch of old white guys. Yeah. And you pointed out the amount of uh you know prominent libertarians throughout history who are jewish and who are black and and i i started sort of running down the rolodex of all the libertarians that have had a huge impact in my life and i'm like yeah you know what a lot of a lot of black guys a lot of jewish guys but a lot of black guys. Well, I have to say, yeah, of course, it, it basically, of course, it's dominated by the Jews have dominated the socialists and the Jews have dominated the libertarians. It's just crazy because I, I do think dominated is certainly uh, uh, defensible, given the fact that Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard were both Jewish. And the, those are two just alone. Uh, there's not much oxygen left after you've got those two. 
Uh, but uh, but when with respect to blacks, uh, I I revere Thomas Sowell, uh, mm-hmm. even though uh, when it comes to uh, a fair number of writings on foreign policy, I would call him a neocon, and and I guess he would not call himself a libertarian, but certainly he he has a great deal to teach libertarians. With respect to blacks, uh, who else would you Walter Williams? Who else do you have in mind? Yeah, I think uh, Walter Williams, especially um, there was that. Um, that series, Free to Choose, where Walter oh. Williams and, and Thomas Sowell figure prominently. Um, I think oh, yes. Had, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. 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 You no, know, yeah, it, I, yeah. it might be telling uh, about me where I'm like, wait, Lou thinks two black guys is a lot of black guys? Is it, is it? <laughs> well, well, no, well, no, really. Well, the fact the well, I would I would extend the list. Sure. There are a lot of really fa- uh, fantastic and eloquent uh, uh Black uh, thinkers and among and the, uh, Thomas Sowell is definitely is a giant and so just just him alone Walter Williams has not quite had his out but Walter Williams however in his own right is a brilliant guy although I would certainly say that Sowell is in the class by himself uh, I, actually when people ask me to recommend a book on economics I, I often uh, cite Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell uh, as perhaps the first book. You should read, even though Sol isn't even quite an Austrian in the sense that Sol doesn't quite understand Austrian business cycle theory. But that book is so superb, and so many of his writings are, are so superb that uh, I do think that uh, he belongs uh, on our pers- on our Mount Rushmore. But then beyond that, Walter Williams, and then there are other uh, younger guys uh, from uh, John McMorder, Glenn Lowry. Uh, Jason Riley, uh, many of them, uh, they don't quite talk about politics, but much of what they have to say is really great. Uh, Jason Riley, in particular, is a disciple of Soul. So we do have, uh, you know, we yeah. do have some some great guys in the room. Young, yeah, and old Glenn, black Glenn guy. Lowry is is definitely yeah. one of my uh, yeah. one of my favorite uh, thinkers uh, yeah. ever. And 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 it's one of those things where, yeah, I wonder how many of them would accept the label of a of a libertarian, even if it is a, a small L yeah, uh, libertarian. We, we, because I think I think so- I think we lose a lot of people on the economic side. I think can- on on a lot of the social stuff, on yeah. free speech, and th- and that sort of thing. We have a yeah. quite a few people who are with us, but when it comes to the economics, they sort of, you know, uh, veer. Yeah, and what and what? And what and well, I want also want to name because because the recent uh, movie What Killed Michael Brown, right. and that was uh, why am I drawing a blank on, uh, uh, on the Eli uh, Eli Steele and Shelby Steele, his father. Shelby, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Shelby, and you know, because Shelby is the guy who's in it, and I remember reading his book. These guys, I, I bet you know, for what it's worth, you know, if, we, if we're if we're uh, parsing out. Uh, all the nuances in the libertarian uh, spectrum. You know, Richard Epstein, who is, of course, a Jew and no relation to me, last I checked, and neither, by the way, is Jeffrey Epstein, I want you to know. And uh, because... I oh man, we, I had all these questions about that <laughs> island, and oh man, I watched. And, I mean, I did. I, despite myself, I sort of personally winced for a while there. Every time there was a headline with Epstein this and Epstein that, you know. And uh, but no, he's not either. But Richard Epstein, of course, is correctly categorizes himself as a classical liberal. You have to use two words. Uh, he's a fellow child. He's, he goes. He correctly points out. He goes eighty-five percent of the way with libertarians. Um, and uh, that's uh, legitimate. And probably uh, those other guys that we most mentioned, the black guys in particular, would call themselves classical liberal if we were uh, 
to ask them about that particular uh, label. They would tend to say conservative, but classical liberal uh, fits them. And certainly, we don't want a lot of infighting. We want we we want alliances where we can get them, and uh, we want to be candid about our disagreements. But uh, but definitely uh, promote people who valuably contribute to our thinking, even though we don't go all the way with them, and even though many of them would not laugh at that joke of yours, Lou, about Obama sending the president the bomb at the at the wedding, because those guys apparently just cannot explore uh, the implications of their beliefs when it comes to American foreign policy, and will never seem to bring bring them around. Well, you've definitely. Um done your part trying to bring people together who who disagree um yeah. with the uh, the soho forum uh debates and, and yeah. like you said i've you know been at a a number of them and uh my my favorite that i actually got to see in person you were you were you weren't the moderator but you were the uh one of the the debaters and that was against um uh, boscar from uh Jack oh my Levin. gosh that was my embarrassment <laughs> that's when i when i well, lost my temper <laughs> well well <laughs> well well uh yeah so if uh if people, um, I, I guess if they if if they don't know what what Gene is like when he loses his temper, apparently it involves saying uh, your opponent's first name many times uh, with, yeah, with I did. I more sternly at it. Yeah, got it. No, I was under. Yeah, no. Well, let me let me just give full context there yeah. and say that number one, that that actually has gotten nearly a hundred thousand YouTube videos, which is pretty good. But but then. I, I got criticized by everybody for having lost my temper with Bascar. And partly I was under pressure. What had actually happened was my, my, my operations assistant, speaking of pregnancies, you're, uh, you've got an eight-month-old. So she suddenly, uh, uh, eight weeks early, she went into labor. And so I lost her. So I had to organize without her, with, with just a couple of stringers, this immense event. And I had to do work overtime for it you had to and change venues it, change, it, was, at, well, it yeah. was originally at a smaller venue and then you got this yeah huge, we changed we, cha egg. we changed venues but i was yeah i was all set to use my operations assistant jane menton who's very important but then she understandably had to go on emergency pregnancy leave and then I, I didn't have anybody else so i was under pressure to organize it completely on my own and uh, so i felt a sort of state of tension i think that's part of the reason why i lost it because i remember when basco was up there talking about profits and depreciation. I, I remember thinking back at that moment, that's where something clicked off in me and I got contemptuous. And that's when I got up and said, you know, learn some economics, Baskar. Um, Dave Smith says that every once in a while, his wife says that to him. It's, a, it's been a classic insult now, learn some economics, <laughs> Baskar. And so uh, I lost it. And, uh, but then, uh, you know, a lot of people fairly criticized me. A lot of young people said, oh, you just had a lot of passion and why not? You did get your message across. I listened to it and I said, I didn't lose my, my temper to the point where I became incoherent. My message seemed to be clear, mm -hmm. but certainly I could have been gently with them. But then cut to about a year later, I did another socialist debate uh, with uh, Professor Richard Wolf. Right. And there, I didn't lose my temper because I learned my lesson to control uh, these angry passions of mine. And that has had uh, over 1.8 million YouTube views. So I'm proud that that one has eclipsed my one with Baskar. Well, I just want, I just want to point out, it's, yeah. I think it's really telling in that, you know, we're how many uh, were over a year removed from that debate that you had with Baskar and you're still um, thinking about, hey, did I lose my temper? Meanwhile, this yeah. guy recently went on Twitter and basically said, uh, 
yeah, you know, the fact that the czar, that the children of the czar in Russia were murdered, well, you know, that's fine because the revolution was more important. Um, and you guys can go and, on Twitter and find his uh, his uh, his specific tweet about that. He said um, he wrote that, really? He did? Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and not, in, not in those exact words, but... Yeah. Uh, and I just find it... And uh, I remember I, I emailed you after that first debate, basically thanking you for what I think was... Uh, basically showing the ideology for what it is, um, whether it's socialism or democratic socialism, what you want to call it. Um, and and uh, I would describe Bhaskar and his ilk as the type of people who don't want to tell you exactly what they have planned for you um, when the revolution comes. And you got him to, to be open about that. And it's basically... No, you know, I, uh, they want the ownership of the means of production. And if you have the, uh, you know, the audacity to want to uh, do something on your own, especially in a business setting or something like that, uh, they want to throw you in prison. They, they want to they want they want to jail you for voluntary uh, exchanges between between. People. I guess I guess I guess um, I guess you could say that, Lou, I, that quote that you just uh, threw at me from Baskar actually does uh, surprise me. Uh, I, I would I, I would put it somewhat differently from the way, the way you put it, but but then given that quote from Bascom, maybe you have a point. But in any case, setting that one aside, I would say that uh, that they they are sort of all over the map. Uh, they do many times say that they don't want to go the way of the Soviet Union. They don't want to imitate uh, Mao's China, and then. And then about a half hour later, they're suddenly saying something nice about the Soviet Union, about Mao's China. Richard Wolf did that with me on the stage. I actually said, you know, I've been pushing, I've been saying something, and Richard's got, gotten defensive about the Soviet Union. But most of the time, he tells us that he repudiates the Soviet Union. He wrote a book about repudiating it. But then the next thing you know, that uh, they're fickle about it. The next thing you know, they're suddenly endorsing the Soviet Union in a certain way. So uh, they, 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 it, at, 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 the most charitable thing to say about them is that they're somewhat confused. Uh, Baskar wrote had wrote a whole book about his socialism and was extremely vague about quite how it would work. Uh, uh, Richard wrote a book that was pretty specific. Richard Wolf, a much older guy, actually a couple of years older than I, uh, who wrote a book called Democracy at Work, A Cure for Capitalism. And in that debate, I, with Richard, I was able to do a deep dive into the book and point out what would happen, how freedom would be trampled on, how innovation would be trampled on. Then Richard surprises me by getting up and saying that um, he doesn't remember what's in that book. He wrote it six years ago. So, uh, wow. I mean, again, that's the way they talk. So in a way, it's sort of like punching a pillow to talk to these people. Uh, you, you, The way you're putting it sounds a little bit too harsh. Uh, would they really down the line defend defend uh, the Soviet Union? Would they really down the line defend uh, uh, Mao's China uh, or, uh, or or Ho Chi Minh's Vietnam? Probably not. But then every once in a while, they surprise you by sort of doing that. I guess it's, it's sort of like the intellectual death throes of these people. Because uh, as you know, if you, because uh, you were at that debate with Baskar, my main point is that if they really want what what we did uh, in the 1960s and 70s, mainly in the 70s, left, 
put our sort of action where our mouths were. We formed communes. We went in for, you know, communal ownership. We tried all that. And it just wasn't something we really wanted to do. It wasn't uh, that, that we find that the contract that we make with capitalists, which is that they take on the headaches and risks of running the organization and we earn a salary, that that deal is, pre- is pretty much what most of us want to accept. But I, again, hasten to say that if you really want the means of production to be owned and operated by the workers, as Richard does in that book of his, Democracy at Work, then it's perfectly doable under capitalism. Right. Uh, the uh, the uh, one third of all consumption is accounted for by the lower half of the population, uh, nearly two thirds by the lower 80%. There's all that consumer firepower. There's a trillion dollars in the hands of the labor unions domestically, there are many trillions of dollars in the hands of labor unions internationally. There are all kinds of routes whereby they could buy up companies, boycott companies, if they want to take over the means of production by capitalist means. Capitalism offers them that choice. And indeed, to some degree, we already have it. We do have, obviously, people who don't want to work for bosses. I guess we probably have Lou Perez, who wants to be an independent. And so you can have that option. And if it really does speak to the the hearts and minds of, of, of the broad masses of people, it would become an easy thing to bring about because then there could be organizations that would further it. And so that's my point about their core belief to the extent that we can take them seriously. If you don't want to be answerable to a boss and you want to be a part of a commune, that kind of life is perfectly possible. Just convince some other people to do it with you. So that was my main refutation of their point of view to the extent that I can take them seriously at all. Yeah, and I thought and I thought that was that was brilliant. Um, yeah. I often explain it where, you know, under under my under my system that I want to see, you're able to be a socialist and do um, and do that thing, mm-hmm. but under your version, the socialist version, I am unable to do what it is that 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 I want to do. And um, yeah. I, I was looking up the the quote from yeah. Bhaskar Sankara, uh, yeah. which it appears to be deleted on Twitter, but somebody over at theamericanconservative.com saved it. And I remember this one. Uh, Bhaskar writes, the question isn't what we think justice demands. I think killing little Romanov children was justified. But it's not surprising why these views are controversial, given most people's ethical and moral frameworks. Oh, wow. So I see. And, and right. this, wow. and, 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 but then yeah, why was it? Why was it take? Do you think? Do you think Baskar? I want to be nice to the guy. You think Baskar just got thought thought it was a, a, a bad idea and he took it down? Maybe it was you know, maybe, and that's and that's possible. And you know, and I would and I would uh, have a, a good faith, um, you know, discussion with him and say that hey, you know what? Sometimes we post things out that uh, we put things out that we don't actually mean, and then when, on second thought, or or when people uh, you know come at us and and actually uh, ask more more probing questions about what we stated, maybe there was a change of heart there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, on its, you know, on its face, it seems like something that I, I just think is, is pretty evil. <laughs> oh <laughs> right? yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And indeed, I mean, I would, I would go for, you know, I, I mean, I remember years ago uh, uh, talking to my socialist cousin 
who when I when I asked him about uh, how he felt about you know the Russian Revolution, um, he, he was a Trotskyite, so he felt the Russian Revolution had taken a wrong turn, mm. and because uh, we get it, get into all of the uh, all of the nuances of the Mensheviks, the Bolsheviks, the Trotskyites, uh, and all the rest of them. But anyway, but it, but but his stock answer that he felt fell back on was, well, uh, yeah, uh, you know, you can criticize uh, Stalinism and Leninism as I do. He said, of course, but it. it it certainly was an improvement over the czars. And uh, and I didn't argue with that one, but the truth is that if we wanted to argue that one, it was definitely not an improvement over the czars. The, the economy was improving. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, there's plenty of progress being made under the czars. Um, much better things would have happened to the, to, to the Russians had the Russian Revolution never happened. Uh, uh, that's absolutely certain. So killing the Romanov kids uh, certainly ushered in an awful reign of terror that was far, far worse than what the Romanovs were doing. Yeah, I find it. I, I find it too often where you have these, where you have that that sort of response. And yeah. the one I, I I hear it all the time is when it comes to Cuba. Yeah. And they you know, the two things that people always point to is well, uh, they have very high literacy rates and yeah. free health care. And yeah. it's like, wow, do you, you really need to have uh, decades and decades and decades of a dictator in yeah. order to, to, to reach those dreams of, yeah. of, be, of high literacy in a country where uh, they go after librarians, uh, in a country where you're not allowed to have uh, collections of, of books? Uh, Nat Hentoff pointed that out. I think oh, he was writing, I don't know if it was uh, in The Village Voice or, or Cato years ago. But it's yeah. like when, you know, when you're... When your country is jailing librarians, you know yeah. it's time to really think about you know what about, path you're about, on about the high literacy rate. But what those people, well, indeed, in the case of Cuba, I mean, I look, I have a long history with uh, with this, uh, as as I as I famously told everybody, you know, mommy was a commie, and my mother was active in, in the Fair Play for Cuba committee, and in fact, she she took a picture with Castro. And uh, she visited uh, Cuba, and uh, she was talking up the place. Uh, and uh, uh, there too, uh, we'd have to make uh, the difficult argument, but I think it's easy enough to sustain that you know that that the despot Batista uh, was better than Castro. That uh, that Castro Castro was not Stalin. That's Sure, we we certainly can't put him in Stalin's category, Lenin's, but certainly uh, there was already a high literacy rate, generally high uh, uh, level of, uh, of material well-being in Cuba compared to any other Latin American country. It had been growing. It it, it was hardly ideal under Batista, but but certainly Castro was definitely a turn for the worse. So there too, we can even make that kind of grim. Comparison, yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember you telling uh, yeah. stories about about your mother, uh, yeah. the the communist. And uh, recently, I watched the movie Reds uh, from oh, Red. uh, Warren Beatty. Oh, one of my mother's favorite movies. Yeah, and, yeah. and uh, you know, I was I was very uh, I was ready to hate the movie on ideological grounds and all oh, that. But oh. it's but there's something of, of one of the beautiful things about art is that it's able to cut through ideology, oh. and I think. It was such a brilliant movie. It's beautifully performed. Uh, it's it's an epic movie. I think it's close to like four hours. Um, yeah. No, and, well, and just so well, a little done. over three hours. Three a little hours. over three. Yeah. Um, still in, long. In, still in, long. Yeah. In, in my uh, 
you know, in, in my world of instant gratification, three hours is is now equivalent. Yeah, I know. To, I, know. To, I was about to I was about to tell you that, Lou, but I, I didn't want to. There's an intermission. There's an intermission, Gene. So, <laughs> exactly. um, yeah. but what? Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I wanted to mention about that movie. Well, actually, Lou, I would go beyond that. I know that movie quite well. I, I think it's a good movie. I think it's a little bit flawed. The 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 spectacular parts when the when the when the revolution happens, they're just singing. It was a little bit tinny, but it was. It, it's a good movie. It's a good mm -hmm. movie. Not a great film. I, I don't put it among my favorite twenty, but but it is a good film. Uh, but but in fact, uh, my mother loved it. And uh, her husband did. My my mother's second husband uh, was uh, was a Stalinist, uh, and uh, they thought it was a great film. And obviously, of course, to be uh, depicted by uh, by Diane Keaton and Warren Beatty playing John Reed, the guy who who uh, who was president of the Russian Revolution, it's a great story and well acted. Uh, but uh, but getting to the to the point about the theme of the film, the Moyne Stapleton character. The, the Emma Goldman character, played by Maureen Stapleton, the actress, she's telling the Warren B. Uh, John Reed, played by Warren Beatty, the revolution's being betrayed. Mm -hmm. She was. She is giving that message. She's. She's. She's a rock rib socialist, and she's saying this is not the way to go. And then he he says to her, "Russia's the first country of socialism, and we have to support it." So I think that at that point, the film gets appropriately sort of didactic and messagey. And it does say that, uh, that, that even if you are a socialist, uh, the, 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 the ideals of socialism were betrayed. The ideas of democratic slash sort of libertarian, liberal socialism were betrayed by the Russian Revolution. The, 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 it is a kind of a message film in that way, I would say legitimately, because I think Maureen Stapleton has the better of the argument, because all the Warren Beatty, John Reed characters are able to say, it's the first country of socialism, we have to support it. Rather a lame a, a reason to support a revolution that Moyne Stapleton says is, is being betrayed in the person of Emma Goldman. I actually said that to my mother. I said, you like that film? Because of course we were arguing all the time about right. socialism versus capitalism. I'd been a democratic socialist, uh, but then I, by that point I was no longer a socialist. And I said, that's the point of the film, mother. And my, and my mother says, no, no, oh no. She said, <laughs> he said, Russia is the first country of socialism, and we've got to support. It. She thought that was a killer argument. So okay, so that that of course shows how probably my mother and I belong in that film. They all actually come to think of it. The only other inadequacy of the film is that they have all of these faces from the past, all of these all these people who were actually existed, play, who who were, who were talking. Henry Miller, yeah, yeah, and they're, others. They're, yeah, they're um, a talking they, they, head sort of segues at some point. So it's sort of a mix of documentary. Precisely, and, and it's actual celeb, actual people playing themselves, making statements, and it does have a nice effect on the film, gives it a kind of a nice historical context. I, 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 I know I'm getting into this, but they certainly should have put the names across the screen. They should have, mm. they could have a, a name and a sort of brief connection. It would have helped, I think, rather than just having these, and just having you do guesswork, you know, as to who is this and who is that. It's still a good film, and, and uh, I, I, I recommend it uh, to others. And I do think that it is, of course, about a guy who's pursuing a dream. He's a great guy, John Reed. Remember also when he, oh, come to think of it, remember when he gets he, he gets uh, censored by right. uh, 
by by the by the Russian commissar. I mean that in itself is, and he's saying you, you're killing my soul. He had been censored by the capitalists, now he's censored by the socialists. And there was that scene where he runs off, pursuing something in the distance, and sort of that's the beautiful metaphor for the fact that he's pursuing a dream that that isn't simply not going to be realized. So that there too, I guess, come to think of it, that's the argument I should have used with my mom. <laughs> But mom, mom died at the age of ninety-two, uh, and and, uh, and she's no longer here to hear around to hear my arguments. Did yeah. um uh, d- did your mother's husband ever uh, recant his Stalinism? He died in a shower of a heart attack at the age of sixty-five, Lou. Just to be vivid about it, and this was in the in the nineteen eighties. My my mom did. My mom lived. Uh, she died in two thousand and uh, what two thousand seven. So she lived to see a lot. Uh, mm. uh, and at the age of ninety-two, so indeed she be, she she did renounce her enthusiasm for the Soviet Union once. Although she she used to say to me, "Don't you believe in worker ownership?" I said, "Well, yeah, of course I do. I think it's possible." You know, she used to she latched on that a little bit, but she did indeed. I guess we could do a great documentary about my mom, uh, Lou, but there's probably not enough footage for her. But maybe more in Stapleton can play or Diane can and so on. Just her odyssey. Uh, but uh, she, uh, but uh, she, I mean, she lost custody of her own kids because she was a communist. So she she paid a price. And uh, so uh, that's uh, that's her story. But indeed, she did she did uh, 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 renounce her communism because she was in her late 80s and early 90s and getting a little bit feeble. Uh, you know me, Lou. I don't want to take advantage of old people, so I didn't really argue with her too strenuously. Because when she was saying that, well, she was giving up on the socialist dream. I thought that was that was good enough. A, a, a mm-hmm. very uh, a very uh, uh, nice concession uh, for her to make. So yeah. so you so. Um, you and your brother were taken out of your mother's custody because she was a communist? Well, basically, yeah. My, my father, uh, my, my father, who was not basically an FDR liberal, a, a, a very uh, kid born, born a, a young uh, child of poor immigrants who became a millionaire in business. He, uh, he, he uh, got custody of, uh, of the kids. My mother had not only been uh, a card counting communist, uh, under the name on the pseudonym Rhoda Warren, that's the, she. She. Uh, they were all told use a pseudonym so that you can't be traced to easily. Her pseudonym was Rhoda Warren. My mother, my father was able to prove that she was a communist, and on top of that. Uh, mainly in reaction to my father's own infidelities, my mother started to sleep with black guys in the party. And uh, and I always suspected that black guys were joining the party in order to meet my mom. I think that was maybe the big lure because most of those black guys, as you know, favor libertarianism. But anyway, so so, to, so the idea that in the early 1950s, you're, you're not only a communist, but you're committing adultery with black guys, uh, that was bad enough. You know, that was two strikes against her. I'll tell you something funny. My mother's FBI file, which I, which I got, you know, from the Freedom of Information Act, they're following her around. And, uh, and, and uh, they, they keep saying in this little memo, we're thinking of approaching her to be a double agent. You know, double agent being that that instead of being you know, that you'll you be a turncoat and and inform on your fellows, she said on uh, on your fellow communists. But but she is a she is a deeply immoral woman, and we cannot do that. You know, she's too immoral to to be trusted to, to as a be a agent. traitor. She's too immoral to be a traitor. To, to be right? a traitor. <laughs> to be a traitor to her friends. But then I knew where they got this from because the court ruling. This is in the 1950s. The court ruling, uh, which was. Uh, there were three divorce trials and three custody trials. So I spent a lot of my youth in and out of courtrooms. But anyway, uh, but anyway, uh, the final court ruling wrote said that 
that while it is not usual to give custody to the father, even when the, when the mother has committed adultery, uh, uh, but uh, this is a deeply immoral woman. In other words, that even though she would committed adultery, we would normally give her custody, but she is a deeply immoral woman. And I know what that meant was that she was a communist and she'd been sleeping with black guys. That made you deeply, deeply immoral. And that's why she lost custody. Uh, but then it's just funny that the FBI file uh, echoed the opinion of the court. <laughs> that yeah. She was a deeply immoral woman who couldn't approach as a double agent. So she you paid know, a price. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, wow. I can't imagine the, the, the pain your mother must have been going through at that at that time, um, that's that's incredible, and, and just you know, like you said uh, later on in life, not you know hammering her about her, uh, you know, the Stalinism or communism. It's uh, yeah. I, 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 I argued with her pretty vociferously throughout. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly she lasted a long time, and I did. But the way the way we were was also one of her favorite films. <laughs> just, you know, that's Bob. Barbara Streisand's a commie, and and her boyfriend is you know Robert Redford, who rejects her because she's too committed. So my mother loved the loved movies with those themes. Uh, and uh, but probably the Reds are most of all. So I argued with her pretty strenuously, but she gave as good as she got. Lou, come on, she, oh, okay. she did. Yeah. <laughs> she was pretty feisty, you know. She's she. You know, I'm, I'm, anyway, yeah, if if you, I think yeah, if you have a, a file with the FBI, you, you're probably uh, some level of badass. I, I you know well, that's, that's a good question, Lou. I, I I've been wanting to do more research into it. I had an uncle Abe who had a file. Uh, you know, it seemed like you know they were really just going after everybody. My mother quit that quit the party. She quit the party uh because you know she knew that it would uh, that it would be difficult for her and to then get all custom. the black men quit like they're like oh, we, we, <laughs> they had no more it was like what's going on we need a, a diversity uh an inclusion council here precisely there was a big exodus from the party at that point on the part of the african-american community and a number of jews like my mom and but my mother quit strategically but then they were still following her around because as you perhaps know the rosenbergs who were uh, you know the the rosenbergs who were uh, executed for being atom bomb spies they had quit the party years before and of course that was part of the ruse that in order to be a a spy, you confuse the powers that be by quitting the party. So the so the FBI was not trusting anybody. If you'd been a commie, then maybe you'd still work in underground for the party. You yeah. know, and uh, you know, I, I I do I do use that the the joke that I hadn't. I don't even know the source of it. That you know, one out of every ten um, mem- uh, members of the Communist Party was an FBI agent. And the joke is, you could tell who the FBI agents were in the party because they were the only ones who paid their dues on time. <laughs> and, uh, so it was heavily infiltrated. And that's why I never thought that the House on American Activities Committee really did any purpose to investigate communists. I mean, you know, they knew who was a communist. They, you know, one out of 10 FBI agents was a communist. They were, they were monitoring their every move. And of course, for what it's worth, these, commie, these communists, my mother included, they were not violent people. They did believe in electoral policy. They put up their candidates. They didn't blow up buildings for what that's worth. I mean, they did. You know, I, I get a pass from my fellow libertarians, I guess, because everybody says, wow. I mean, Bob Murphy said uh, to somebody else, wow, who can match Gene Epstein's childhood? The FBI follows his mom around, you know, right. everybody gets excited by that. Nobody shames me and says, said, and you're, you're proud of your mom and she supported Joe Stalin, one of the greatest mass murderers of all time. And you're proud of that? You know, I'm not proud of that. I tend to give her a pass because she sort of was well-intentioned. I tend to give most of them a pass. They were confused, well-intentioned. They weren't violent, uh, but, uh, and they were, for the most part, 
not too effective. So I tend to forgive them. But then if somebody wants to come after me and say, how can you forgive people who supported Joe Stalin? I have to say, well, yeah, you do have a point. Uh, mm-hmm. there's, there, there's something to what you say. You know, I, I wonder how much, uh, yeah. how much of it too is just um, so many people just don't take into account the historical context as well. I mean, you know, oh. we're here, in, we're here in 2020. Uh, the uh, files from the KGB have been, you know, made public. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if we're dealing at a, a, a movie that that I highly recommend is uh, Mr. Jones. Have you seen that? Oh yes, indeed. I did. I did a screening of it in my home, Mr. Jones. Uh, yeah, about the uh, journalist who uh, who went in the late 1930s. Tra- British journalist travels to the Soviet Union and covers Stalin's. Uh, a uh, uh, campaign to starve the Ukrainians, yeah. and, and uh, hundreds of thousands died of starvation. And then, of course, contrasted by Walter Durante, brilliantly played by I forget the actor's name, um, Walter Durante, the New York Times journalist who was uh, who won a Pulitzer Prize for writing whitewash about the Soviet Union at the time in the late 1930s. Yeah, yeah. So, so just thinking about. You know, if you're uh, an American at the time and you're, yeah. you know, a card carrying communist and you're yeah. looking to the New York Times yeah. as your as your, you know, inside, you know, um, yeah. your, your inside information to what's happening, uh, you know, uh, with yeah. the world. Yeah. And Walter Durante's coming back and saying, no, things are things are wonderful in the Soviet Union. Well, Lou, you have to be you are, you're right. Um, I think. You know, you know, it's an interesting to trace, and of course, it, it's something that uh, I've always thought about, uh, and I perhaps should know more about it than I do. But Bertrand Russell, who was a socialist, the, philo- the British philosopher Bertrand Russell, he traveled to the Soviet Union in the 1920s. He was not at all impressed. He, he, he saw through what was going on, as indeed the Emma Goldman character does in Reds. sees the sees the fascism of the government. Maybe doesn't see the major crimes, but understands that this is a, the, these are authoritarian people. Uh, uh, people and this is going to not go well. Uh, John Maynard Keynes in the late 1930s celebrated the Soviet Union. Certainly had access to information, uh, and indeed uh, uh, in the in the movie, I haven't checked the facts ex- exactly, but uh, but but uh, uh, Mr. Jones's uh, Gareth Jones was his name. His article did come to light about what was going on there. Uh, we do we we have a strange thing in that film, if you recall. Uh, it's a nice touch that uh, that um, uh, George. Orwell is woven into the story, but I didn't quite believe uh, toward the end of the film, even though it's great dialogue, that George Orwell would say to Gareth Jones, you know, Gareth Jones says, I only know what I saw. I know what I saw. And and George Orwell says, oh, I'm sure you do, but you don't appreciate the larger context. You know, the old excuse for awful crimes being committed. But I don't think that that's really what George Orwell would have said, even though it's a great it's great dialogue, and I didn't object to it too strongly. But but I'm only saying that by the late 1930s, I think enough information was coming out about what was going on there, so that anybody, certainly like John Maynard Keynes in particular, uh, couldn't be given a pass. And any literate Jew, come on, my mother was was you know she was Jewish. She she read things. Uh, They should have known. And then aside from that, Lou, in 1956. Nikita Khrushchev, who took over, delivered a quote-unquote secret speech that wasn't secret at all, in which he condemned Stalin's crimes. And that was when there was another huge exodus 
from the Communist Party, which my mother did not participate in at that point. Mm. She she left the Communist Party for practical reasons because she was fighting for custody, but she was still uh, loyal to communism and the Communist Party even after that revelation. They, 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 you know what their usual excuse was? Well, yeah, oh yeah, Stalin was pretty bad. They tend to minimize it. They'll argue with, about how many people they really killed and all the rest of it, but Stalin is history now. Now we've got Nikita Khrushchev in charge. You know, any number of crazy excuses to stay loyal uh, to uh, to the to, to the party. So I, I, I'm I'm a little. I'm, you seem to be a little bit more lenient than I on on these people. Except, of course, obviously, maybe she was my mom. And I think again, they weren't violent. They did deal in electoral politics. They they were. Uh, deluded, they were ignorant, but they sort of meant well, they had good attitudes. They didn't hate Jews. They weren't Nazis. They didn't, where Nazism is sort of like defined as, 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 as hating Jews, they, they, Stalin was indeed a Jew hater, but, but their basic beliefs did not involve hatred. So at least I, to some degree, I give them a pass partly for that reason as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, uh, uh, my, my son, like we said, he's, uh, eight months old yeah. and we've been collecting a lot of, uh, uh, children's books um, for us to, you know, to read with him. Yeah. And we have a, a friend of ours who has a daughter who gave us a, uh, a bunch of, of books, these little, these little books, I think it's from a series called like little feminists or something oh, like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And in one of the books uh, it had, it had, uh, so you have artists, you have leaders and you have all this stuff. And one of the, uh, one of the artists that they, that they, um, uh, that they have in the book is uh, Frida Kahlo. Um, the, uh, the Mexican, uh, uh, artist. And I, uh, you know, (laughs) I couldn't fail, but I I, I had to point out, it's like, oh, so I guess in order to be a good little feminist, you also have to be a Stalinist. Um, and it was sort of, it was sort of the, the idea of, oh, she, doesn't she look cute with her, with her unibrow? Um, (laughs) way to, way to go ladies. You know, when her when her boyfriend, uh, or sort of fellow artist was the muralist and, and, and Stalinist. What is the name again? Uh, uh, is it Diego something? Diego Rivera, was it? Rivera, yeah, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and I got to, uh, uh, when we were in, we took a trip to Mexico City when my wife was was pregnant uh, with mm-hmm. our son. And of course, we had to go to the Frida Kahlo Museum. And, you know, in her bedroom, there's a, a picture of a painting of Marx and Stalin and I think Lenin. Uh, and I, I took a, a picture in front of it, a photograph in front of it with a very... Uh, uh, upset look on my face. I was just a, disgust, a disgusted look on my face. I well, wondered, well, the, and the, the fact that I guess to, to sort of in a way to cap it all off, in a way, sort of the, the biggest movie about this really was Reds, and certainly Reds definitely portrays these people as charming, well-intentioned. They were feminist. They were, uh, they, you know, they they were sort of precursors of the new left. They they lived in communal environments. They lived they were egalitarian. They had all kinds of good attitudes and. So in a way, it's it's difficult to condemn them uh, in any uh, summer, summary fashion. Yeah. Well, well in the, yeah, in the New York Times, they had that uh, that yeah. series not too long ago about uh, uh, about I guess all of the the good stuff about uh, about communism. There was an article about how how women had better sex. Under, oh, under yeah, better sex role. under communism. Yeah, that was. Yeah, did you search that one down, Lou? And did you find out whether they really did have better sex under communism? It was. You know. <laughs> it, was, it, was it was. It was just. I, it just, I just could not believe that it was. Some, you know, it was, what what you know, uh, our, our your fellow comic Andrew Heaton. You know, it's like the stuff. You know, when he his 
the title of his book, Laughter is Better Than Communism. You know, so I thought, you know, you could do a riff on that. Is sex better than under communism than under capitalism? You know, that's sort of like the stuff of comedy rather than right. uh, really serious research because I think it's very difficult to determine an answer to that question, Lou. Or, or, uh, or the, or, you know, maybe there's something to the idea when you, you're not sure if the secret police are going to come for your lover at any moment. So it's like every single time you do it, it's like the last time on earth. Or That could be, or but I mean, and aside from that, you know, uh, when you really focus on it, as as has been reported and uh, and maybe not fully documented, there was a sort of sexual dolce vita among the sexual predators of the Soviet Union, the, the, the party guys. It's depicted in another film about East Germany. And we've been recommending films the whole time. Now I'm forgetting that one about East Germany. Anyway, obviously it is about, uh, it, it, it does portray the guys in East Germany basically sexually exploiting the women. You know, you have nowhere else to go. You can't quit your job. And so uh, if uh, if they want to rush you into bed, you have very little choice. And apparently that was pretty much commonly practiced in many of these countries, uh, and, and the Soviet Union in particular, because that, that gives sexual predators extraordinary power because you have nowhere else to go, no alternative but but to stick with uh, stick with that job, stick with that bureaucracy, and have to suffer the uh, the harassment of a, of a sexually predatory male. So that was pretty common as well. So I don't th- I don't know how good that sex was. Uh, right. I'm sure it was pretty pretty uh, pretty unpleasant. Yeah, the, the lives of others is that the movie? You remember that one? The lives oh, of the others? lives of others. That's uh, yeah, yeah. That, that that takes place in in East Germany, right? East Germany. That's yeah. That's about the uh, the about the Stasi and about and then it was because it actually has a kind of a happy ending. Uh, uh, about the Stasi and how uh, uh, under East Germany, and then of course it also uh, continues to the point where uh, East Germany is liberated. The Berlin Wall comes down, and uh, certain retribution is handed out. So it kind of has a happy ending. Uh, yeah. And I, another good film. We've recommended some really good ones here, Lou. I know the way we were as good as well. <laughs> Although it's not quite about politics. Uh, um, uh, it's talking about uh, about the Stasi. Um, yeah. How do you feel about? the calls, uh, at least on social media that I've seen, um, for making new lists, for making lists of, uh, the, uh, you know, people who were part of the Trump administration, perhaps making lists of deplorables. There was a guy, uh, a blue check mark. So, you know, that he's very important on Twitter who, uh, wants to, um, what, what is it? He wants to reeducate, I believe, uh, the 70, some odd million people who voted for Trump. Is there a way that we could re-educate these people? Um, and yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if this is sort of yet another example of perhaps what what, what Bhaskar uh, from the Jacobin is about, where uh, the the gravity of your statement is just is not apprehended by the people making <laughs> making the statement. Where it's like, well, what does like. No, like no, say these say these words actually had power and were able to uh, make things happen in the world. Uh, do you have any idea what this would mean? What it would mean to deprogram seventy million people? What would have to go into that? Do you have any idea what making a list of uh, you know the deplorables would uh, would entail? And to me, it's just. Yeah. Know. Well, it no. It's, indeed, it's it's uh, you're, you're you're absolutely right. Of course, it's it's that's that's shades of uh, that all, all of the ways in which uh, uh, 
uh, socialist regimes, uh, Mao Zedong in, uh, in particular, you know, sent people off to the farms. I mean, you have to re-educate people. That's the whole idea of uh, of that kind of uh, socialism, that the iron fist of government uh, comes in and and forcibly re-educates people, and of course, the only only makes them bitter and miserable in the process. That was uh, particularly the Soviet Union. Castro was doing that a bit as well, uh, and so uh, it, it's clearly pretty ugly. I mean, obviously, I guess on different levels, we want to point out to the to those re-educationists that uh, you know if you want. Have, if you want to hold your own soul forum, if you want to uh, right. put out some tweets, you want to put out some articles and re-educate those deplorables, then probably you don't want to call them deplorables in the first place, since that doesn't really educate anybody very much when you call them names. But uh, you know, do it uh, do it the way uh, the way we classical liberals would want you to do it. But apart from that, beyond that, uh, who are you people to educate us at all? Why don't you just sort of start with a Lou Perez joke about how how Obama sent a present to the wedding in, in the form of a drone attack, and and then you'll understand that you people need a bit of re-educating yourself. Uh, in fact, far more re-educating than many of the rest of us. Even though I, of course, totally agree that uh, that Trump needs some education and Trump supporters need it as well, but those re-educationists uh, need it uh, at least as uh, as urgently as as the Trump supporters do. And uh, so, and you, of course, have been helpful in doing that because using comedy, as you have, Lou, uh, is a good way, a great way to get the message across. I I really appreciate that, Gene. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. And and I think it's yet another example of. Uh, the type of world that that we want, we want to be living in, and we want uh, others, you know, to be taking part in and sharing, is a world where uh, if you have an idea, go for it, try to make it happen. Yeah. Um, use your use your voice, use the the tools that are avail available to you. Use all the 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 platforms and let the people decide voluntarily whether or not they're whether or not they're digging your education. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Whether or not you're leading them into any any kind of real education, and don't let school get in the way of your education. I, I thought I was the first one to say that, but then I I, I later learned that Mark Twain said it uh, uh, about a century before I did. Yeah. Right. Well, Gene, I want to thank you so much for being uh, such a big part of my education um, over over the years, and uh, I want to thank you for your friendship as well. And uh, once again, happy birthday, and uh, to many more. Thank you very much, Lou. And I guess my, my own plug is uh, we're uh, we're doing a, a debate on the lockdown at the Soul Forum. We already have a lot of signups for that. That's going to be middle of December. Uh, take a look at my Twitter account at Gene Soul Forum. Is that just at Gene Soul Forum? Practically my last name now uh, uh, to uh, to follow uh, my news about that and other insights that I hand out to the world. And of course, I always enjoy your tweets as well, Lou. Thank you, Gene.